0: What to make of well, that's too much. Move <laughs> that down. What to make of the cross on a day like today? I remember about eight years ago, my brother and my soon-to-be sister-in-law, we were taking a drive on a day on a Good Friday, just like today. It was one of those days where it's like the first day of spring, where you roll the windows down and the sun's in and it's beautiful. We were back in Chicago from uh, in Chicago from Iron River, where we were living, and it was on that beautiful spring day, one of those days in spring, where we lived in Iron River. It's a small town, and so you come back into the city. There's sort of a certain culture shock when you come back to the city from living in a town of 5,000 people to a city of many millions. And as we were on the way back from church, we were navigating traffic and the large influx of people. I loved it, but there's always this adjustment period that comes along with it. And as we were driving down Montrose, the traffic slowed down and we were moving pretty slowly forward and up a little ways. I could see a small crowd gathered on a corner. As we got a little closer, I noticed that it was a corner where a small church had been for years and still is today. As we got a little closer, I noticed people at the center of the crowd dressed in the stereotypical church costumes. You know, you've got the Roman soldier with the plastic helmet and the Marvin the Martian skirt on. The common folk costumes of repurposed technicolor bed sheets and sashes and probably a fake nativity camel thrown in there for good measure. And there was a couple folks standing around looking up on a large cross. It was set up in the center and the traffic was slowed enough and as we passed, I made eye contact with the Roman soldier. He promptly responded and looked at me and he said, Live crucifixion at 2 and 5. Needless to say, I was a little taken aback, both by his breaking of character and also the way he said it. I was half half expecting there to be some sort of neon lights above it, flashing lights drawing the crowds in for the big show. We ended up going back at those times, but I've thought of that Good Friday several times since. Because of all the dichotomies or the seeming contradictions that we have to understand as followers of Jesus' way, Good Friday seems to me the biggest of these contradictions and dichotomies. Once a year we dabble in this divine spectacle of the violent end of our Lord and Savior. And I remember being very emotionally impacted by the seeing of the passion of the Christ when my non-Christian friends were very confused and disturbed. Depictions of the crucifixion are gruesome, and new movies made made about it seem seem to want to depict it more and more bloody, or historical accuracy, they want to depict the brutality of the day. For a savior whose overarching theme was reconciliatory peace, forgiveness, and welcoming expanding kingdom for sinners on the margins, it sometimes seems odd to me that we make a day to so faithfully remember the violence of it. At its best, these depictions allow us to mourn an evil justice system whose death penalty murdered an innocent man. When we remember that Jesus was convicted to state-sponsored death in an unfair court by a politically-influenced judge. It ought to unseat our emotions and make us desire both justice and peace in the here and now and in the age to come. We recognize and repent our complicity in maintaining status quos that murder the innocent, marginalize the lower, and make excuses for our own sinfulness. And from that, we receive forgiveness and we live reconciled. That by grace, our sin is wiped clean for love. God set out a plan of redemption for all of creation. And on Easter Sunday, when we remember the cross and the grave empty, we can have have peace and know that no earthly evil or sinful structure could hold back the miraculous power of new life. At its worst, this day makes strange bedfellows of our human bloodlust and draws us deeper into a myth of redemptive violence. The flawed equation that violence plus violence equals peace. That is because of violence of the cross, that we can have peace before God. At its worst, Good Friday becomes a day where we perhaps unknowingly remember an episode of divine retribution or child abuse. I remember an episode of 90's TV drama where dad comes home drunk and angry, and the kids all huddle in the corner and the older brother jumps in front of the younger siblings to take the beating, and the younger ones get away unscathed because the older brother bore the bruises. Is that the Good Friday story? A story of an angry father who had some lashes to dole out, but for the humble Jesus who got in the way. There's some dubious theology that sometimes floats around these sorts of Good Fridays where the focus is on the wrath rather than on the love or on the payment of debts. Is Good Friday the equivalent of the loan shark of God, the loan shark come to come to collect with a baseball bat in hand, but for the saving act of Jesus? If that's good Friday's message, why does John 3:16 say for God so loved the world that he gave his only son? It doesn't say God so badly needed to punish that he put his only begotten son in the path of his anger. It says for he so loved the world that he gave his son. What do we do with a cross on a day like today? P.P. Waldenstrom is a uh, theologian that uh, began much of our traditions in the Covenant Church. And much of his work in the late late 1800s centered around what happened on this day of Christ's self-sacrifice. We call this the atonement. He poured over scripture for years to answer how how we are forgiven and brought back into relation to God. In my favorite writing of his, he says this, It must be noted that there is no place in the Word of God where it says that God's justice or righteousness demanded that the punishment must be endured by someone if sin should be forgiven. All talk of payment or debt of sin is foreign to the Word of God. To pay the debt or guilt of sin would imply that by a payment, sin could be ceased to be guilt, but all sin is guilt. And no payment can make sin to be anything else than guilt or transgression or crime the debt or guilt of sin can be forgiven, but it can never be paid. Therefore, it can be clearly seen that in those Bible passages where the forgiveness of sins is likened to the release of debt, of money, not a word is said about payment, but only about remission or forgiveness. Another way of saying that's on Good Friday, we remember that God, not that God paid our debt, but that upon the cross, God forgave it and wiped it away. In a world obsessed with transactional payment, you give me this, and I give you that. God says, you're doing it the wrong way. Let's wipe away the transaction altogether and begin a new life. Waldenstrom wrote, As sin has been for us a poison causing our death, so the blood of Christ is for sin a poison causing its death and our quickening to life in righteousness. I love this part. He has these interludes in his writing where he says, O oh, my soul, rest and breathe here. Take deep breaths of this heavenly air, for great is your God, and great are his works. Praise to be God forever for his unspeakable gift. What to do on a cro- with the cross on a day like today? The appropriation of the cross as our central symbol often makes me uncomfortable, if I'm honest. It's like if you're wearing a cross around your neck, you, might, you could be wearing an electric chair around your neck. The spectacularization of Jesus' death and centrality of the symbol of the cross seems to take comfort in the violence of that day. The seductive and the sinful myth of redemptive violence seek to make the cross for us a symbol of the power of violence. But the power of Good Friday is not found in the power of its punishment, but in the promise of its pardon. Our freedom and pardon is assured not because of the power of the cross to crucify and punish, but in spite of it's powerless to stop God's loving act of forgiveness. Because at the end of the day, the cross is empty. And it remains empty. And the power of this symbol of violence lies not in its power to inflict pain, but in its laughable weakness to silence the power of God's resurrection. It was upon the cross that Jesus brought the wheels of the myth of redemptive violence to a grinding halt. In a world obsessed with two sides, in, out, death and life, violence and peace, God said, let me show you a still more excellent way. To the sinful duality of life and death, the triune God brought a third way of resurrection and made a mockery of the weakness of this symbol to hold power of death over the God of life. This is our story. This is the history we remember. This is the truth that we accept and reject the myth that weapons of destruction hold any lasting power of peace. As Christ breathed his last breath, dying to himself, we too must die to self to take up the banner of the cross. Not to make a spectacle of its gruesomeness, but to recognize and look honestly each day at its powerlessness as a human weapon of hatred or condemnation. The debt was not paid, the punishment wasn't endured sin and death and debt were defeated in that pain and that suffering by their own devices they were defeated and a third kingdom reality has begun and is among thanks be to god that we don't live in an eighth hour good friday amen in our life of faith we must resist the urge to leave jesus on the cross and let him come down at the end of good friday we must lay jesus in the tomb Live crucifixion! The Roman soldier yelled at me through the car window. I thought back on that story a lot this week. What Good Friday story was he calling me to come back and see? Was he calling me back for the drama and the spectacle? To satisfy my bloodlust or our bloodlust? To satisfy my sinful desire for retribution and to want to see someone punished for the injustice of our world? Or was he calling me back to remember rightly the horror of the moment? To watch the sinful spectacle of the state trying to silence the progression of a gospel of peace. More importantly, what was my desire that day and each day since? We've all in some way bought into this sinful dualistic idea that to have life we have to wield the power of sin and death. That's a lie. And the cross proves it. To those sinful desires, the empty cross says, humble yourself to death that you may find life. May it be so. Our final reading comes from John 19, verses 38 through 42. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate if he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who had early come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with spices as was the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there in the tomb.